Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Rulemaking. The government does lots and lots of it. But because the power to regulate is the power to destroy, rulemaking has rules. And like all agency activities, it requires congressional oversight. The Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress asked the Government Accountability Office for ideas on how to improve rulemaking oversight. With what it came up with, the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues joins me now, Yvonne Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. I'm accurate in saying that what they asked is not for you to look at rulemaking, but to look at oversight of rulemaking. That's correct. All right. And what prompted this? This committee was looking at a lot of areas of congressional operation. That's correct. But the committee was looking at ways to strengthen the legislative branch, including its responsibility to pass and oversee laws. So the committee asked GAO to identify how increased legal and regulatory resources could strengthen the legislative branch. That's how we got this request from them. So legal and regulatory, those are related, but not really the same thing. That's correct. The Regulatory relates to, of course, all the the rules that are passed in order to implement the laws that the legislature passes. Legal, of course, relates to statutes and other kinds of authorities which are passed by the Congress. So they are often, shall I say, complementary, but they are clearly not the same. Sure. And so what was the concern of the committee that Congress just doesn't have enough visibility into agency rulemaking? Because this was a bipartisan committee, so it wasn't a matter of saying a particular rule we disagree with or agree with, Mm -hmm. but more what, trying to just get understanding of what's going on in the agencies? Well, there was that, but I think overall the committee mentioned that they were concerned that the Congress was doing less oversight for a number of reasons. Some some of it was because the committees have fewer staff or they have fewer staff with a deep understanding of the policy issues. Their budgets for committees have been cut. And I think that it would be fair to say that they thought that in terms of a balance of oversight or affecting regulations between the Congress and the executive branch, that the executive branch perhaps has more power, more influence now than it had years ago. Yeah, that's an important observation. The congressional staff is really the body of knowledge that is standing in Congress. And I think people misunderstand that sometimes. They think each member of Congress is an expert in all of these areas. And, you know, they're politicians and they a lot of them do know a lot about these things. But there's a lot of knowledge embodied in staff that tends to be a little bit more stable when the members come and go. So what then did you come up with as ways perhaps to help Congress so that it understands what's going on and can oversee rulemaking? Well, what we understood was from the members in the committee staff is that they wanted us to look at options or potentially increasing Congress's role into both oversight and legal issues concerning policies and programs. And they mentioned that they would like us to look into options and trade-offs and potentially creating two new offices, an office of regulatory review and an office of legal counsel. So that's what we did. We reviewed literature and we talked to experts and developed a list of considerations that the Congress could take into account. We did offer a number of options on how these offices might be created, structured, you know, how they might operate. 
All right. We're speaking with Yvonne Jones. She's Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And let's talk about that first one, the Office of, say, Regulatory Affairs. There is mm-hmm. a similar office in the White House, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, which reviews yes. major rules that come from agencies. So was the recommendation that Congress have something similar, a body almost like a mini GAO focused on mm-hmm rules that are major, at least, coming out of the agencies? Okay, so this is perhaps a subtlety, but we did not make recommendations. We offered options Options. and trade-offs because it is our view that when you're looking at the structure of Congress, it is Congress itself that determines its structure and how it is going to be governed. But we did say that one thing that Congress could do is to create new offices, and we did compare a potential Office of Regulatory Review with OIRA. We did not say that the new office should replace OIRA, but we did, for example, talk about considerations, which is how many staff an office would have, what the budget would be. We offered a comparison between the staff and budget of OIRA. And we did talk about considerations like duplication and overlap in this particular situation. If Congress chose to create the office, that could happen. We also talked about the cost of creating new offices. Right. Good point. Yes. Options for them to consider, but not recommendations. And dueling OIRAs, I guess, could be seen as duplication in one sense. But on the other hand, if you have a majority of one party in Congress and a different party in the White House, and that's happened from time to time, then you would have checks and balances OIRA rather than competing OIRA could be an option. That's correct. And on the legal counsel side, what do you envision such an option could do there? Because Congress writes the laws. And so Mm -hmm. we talked about there, too, that, for example, you could create a new office of legal counsel that might perhaps represent both chambers, or you might create an office for each chamber, or you might modify, for example, existing offices like the Congressional Budget Office or the Research Office of the Congressional Review Service. But there are times when the Congress feels that it needs to have its view of the law represented, like, for example, in court proceedings. So, for example, an Office of Legal Counsel could present its view. It could, in fact, defend the Congress, a committee, committee chairs or ranking members or committee members, if need be. It could play the role of the advocate of Congress, for example, before the Supreme Court or other levels of the court. So there are any number of things that that kind of an office could do to help the Congress make sure that its view of appropriate legal actions is presented. Right, because sometimes the courts simply take the plain language of a law, and because people and human beings write laws, sometimes the language is not necessarily consonant with the intent. This comes up a lot in many cases. So could this Office of Legal Counsel, or whatever it ends up being called, should Congress do it, maybe somehow express in prose what the intent was, as opposed to what the language might have been in court proceedings? Well, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but Me uh, concept- conceptually speaking, I think that that is one of many things that such an office could potentially do. All right. And now the committee itself disbanded, and now there's different elements of Congress that are looking at modernization, 
hopefully taking up some of its recommendations. So the report, where does it go now? Who's looking at it? What have you heard, if anything, from members? Okay. Well, we have briefed members of Congress and we have other briefings scheduled. But what would happen now is that Congress would deliberate on the options that we indicated. So, for example, we've talked a bit about the creation of a new office. But, for example, we options included revising existing processes like adding expiration dates or sunset dates like for rules. And then a third option we had was to alter oversight functions, such as adding requirements for agencies to conduct their review. So the Congress will review the options that we have offered. In the meantime, while Congress decides what it wants to do, our report has been issued and we included with the report an Excel table which includes all of the options for an Office of Regulatory Review. So a person could isolate options, sort them in a number of different ways, and look at other issues like duplication cost overlap. We also, not in an Excel table, but in the report, we presented a number of potential options for the creation of an Office of Legal Counsel. So this information is available to everyone to the public as well as to the Congress. Sort of like congressional Tetris, it seems like you've given them to shift and move those cells around. (laughs) Well, we hope that it won't take as long for people to understand it and master it. But yes, if you wish. (laughs) And, And by the way, was one of the options perhaps that GAO could take on some of these functions? I mean, GAO does something that seems unrelated to the core mission, which is hearing and deciding on contract protests. You know, GAO does that. Could GAO be the OIRA location? Was that one of the options? Well, we were not that specific. We did mention that there were perhaps functions that GAO could take on. But as I said earlier, not wishing to make a recommendation, we talked more conceptually about what offices could do and then what the considerations would be in terms of trade-offs. Well, it's certainly one of the most interesting publications from GAO, in my opinion, coming recently. Mm -hmm. So I thank you for joining us. Yvonne Jones is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Good to have you back. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive part of your rules. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported 
and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to it probably won't so by building programs including leadership development programs including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs that's what's really key for I think for our agency and particularly me in this role um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.